0: this is the rock and roll autopsy podcast all right i'm gonna zap her again charge up the paddles
1: come on let's go let's go sorry don't Hold the
0: compressions. Clear. Straight line.
2: Good evening and welcome to Rock and Roll Autopsy. We are the Forensic Files on your radio dial. My name is Scott. And if we got a great show for you tonight, no, we don't. Damn it. (sighs) The phone is ringing again. It's the request line. All right, let's pick it up. WRNRA, East of the Rockies. Hey, breather, what's going on, man? You've decided that from now on, you're going to dress head to toe in black? Because you're in mourning? That's too bad. I hate to hear that. What's wrong? What do you mean you've decided to mourn the loss of good taste and stimulating intellectual conversation after listening to our shitty podcast? Listen, you called the request line. Is there a song that you'd like us to perform an autopsy on? Delia's Gone by Johnny Cash? You got it. All right, buckle up, gang. The subject of our rock and roll autopsy tonight will be Delia's Gone by American music icon Johnny Cash. We'll get the show started after these very important messages from our sponsors what's up music nerds are you tired of wading through a sea of mediocre music desperately seeking to find a glimmer of greatness you're in luck my name is mark and i am the host of the podcast songs that don't suck each week i scour the depths of new music playlists to unearth hidden gems that defy the trends and deliver pure sonic bliss no matter the genre if it doesn't suck it's on my radar So find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe today. And as always, keep searching for and listening to songs that don't suck.
0: Breaking
1: news. What is this garbage you're watching? I want to watch the news. This
2: is the news. All right, gang, we've got our intrepid rock and roll beat reporter, Seven-time Silver Sow Award winner and 1973, 84, and 96 Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Champion, Rico Motherfucking Goodnew on the line. Rico, how the hell are you?
1: doing great man and i've said this before you know with regard to my nathan's championships you know nobody likes a big juicy weenie more than i do so um I'm, i wear those championships proudly uh, so hey um let's get right to it you want to get into some news hey by the way scott i just want to give our listeners a quick thank you for tuning in if you find us mildly entertaining, just grab somebody else that you think might be in digging this shit and just make them listen. So thanks a lot. Um, ready for some news? I am ready. All right. So uh, Nikki Six uh, is is um, uh, trying to. Uh, this was an article by. Uh, uh loudwire once again from our friends there this is joe devita published a few days ago um you know trying to interact with his fans you know asking him you know they he's been asked what are your favorite motley Crue songs right and basically his point is um his point is uh you know we all know the great songs but but this article talks about his five favorite deep cuts scott so let me first of all, before we get into his five favorite Motley Crue deep cuts, what do you, what
2: is, what is your definition of a deep cut? Oh, well, thank you. Um, yes, my definition of a deep cut is for one thing, it cannot be a single. Okay. So it can't be something that the record label selected to put out as a radio single or an MTV video. So anything that's the most well known single or track on a record cannot by definition be a deep cut a deep cut is typically found okay gather around the campfire kids i'm gonna say something that you youngins will not understand a deep cut is typically found on wait for it side two (laughs) scott what is side two can you explain to me what side two is Okay, well, back in the day, whenever we had physical media, we an album would typically d- be divided up into two halves. You would have side one and flip the album over and side two. Same would go with cassette tapes. If you had an eight-track player, it would be four sides. Really weird. Um, and, of course, all of this went away in the CD era and now in Spotify era. Irrelevant. But a non-single in the past typically kind of buried on side two often these deep cuts can be confused with what people might call filler i don't think a good deep cut is filler i think deep cut is actually the songs that real fans of the band like and champion more than the singles they look true fans of a band will view a single as oh that's just for the popular stuff that's the um easily digestible user-friendly material for the masses as a true fan of filling the blank band i like this song buried on side two because i'm a deep fan who gets that far into the album right right and that's always a test of how
1: how big of a fan you are so how many how many side two songs you can name yeah you hit the nail on the head with regard to like i agree with you side one is kind of like let's draw people in with some really user-friendly stuff that can get some radio play i always thought of side two as being this is who the band really is so to speak on side two this is if you want to know who they really are it's not filler. Skip side one, go to side two. So yeah, that's, I totally agree with you.
2: Didn't mean to interrupt you, by the way. No, great. Uh, Filler is something that really started to happen when the CD age rolled along, because then you move from The record album, which you wanted to be ideally between 35 and 40 minutes because anything longer there's that whole physical thing of where the grooves get wider and the sound is compromised or either the grooves get wider or tighter, I can't remember, but the point being is you want less information on an album for it to sound its best. So the sweet spot is like 35 to 40 minutes, which is why all those records in the 70s are like a half hour long, but with the CD now records could be 78 minutes long and the temptation was out there for bands to fill it up and so all of it records started getting kind of worse because records were better when they were shorter and bands just put out their best material then they started filling them up and then people were like why am i spending 17 bucks on a cd with all this crap on it I don't like when I just right. like single. So even the CD even diminished the deep cut a little bit because it was just filler became the thing. Okay, so my next question is can
1: let me see how I want to ask this. Can any band can do deep cuts apply to everybody? Do you have to fit a certain unwritten
2: criteria in order to have deep cuts? What do you think about that? Yeah, I I think you do. And I did you say this article was about Nikki Six and Motley Crew? Right. Okay. I'm there, set. I'm I'm setting this up. I'm setting you are. The
1: domino, I'm setting the dominoes up.
2: Can I go ahead and tip them over? Go ahead, dude. Just you know where I'm going with this. So go. There ahead. are no Motley Crue deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist
1: (laughs) there's no such thing motley can you you explain yes please explain to the listener out there (laughs) why motley crew can never have a deep cut ready set go
2: (laughs) yeah they don't there are no motley crew deep cuts everything anybody who is a who has a passing familiarity with motley know that their first record pretty great kind of a pop punk record pretty good too fast for love Second record, Shout of the Devil, pretty good. Not strong, super strong all the way through, neither album, but those are their best two most complete records. And if you were going to argue that there's deep cuts, it's got to come off of one of those two records, because after that, from theater of pain all the way up until present day, if Motley can write more than one good song per album, that's pretty much all they've been able to muster yeah. up. As each record after that has one or maybe two decent tracks, and then the rest of it is all filler. And there are no, there's no yeah. gold in them var hills. I remember to
1: to reiterate what I said when we did the Motley Crue episode. I remember telling you how difficult it was for me just to get through theater of pain one. Oh. oh yeah. It was it was it was it was a struggle, dude. It was worse than when I was getting ready to take my my fucking college entrance tests. It was awful, dude. But so like when you have a deep cut, dude, I want to talk to you about this. Deep cuts are kind I don't want to see if you want to agree with this. Deep cuts are kind of like when you get to a deep cut, you kind of get like this little sense of accomplishment that you found this little juicy nugget right that this little this little treasure this little easter egg that that you want to cuddle and you're like man i can't believe you hear a deep cut you're like wow man that was a cool fucking song i'm glad i ran into that that's my definition of a deep cut it's like a juicy little nugget that you just kind of kind of find, you know what I mean? It's not something that's right out in the open, kind of got to dig for it. And then when you find it, you're like, have, yeah, it's like, cool. It's like, makes you feel all fuzzy inside, right?
2: There's a that's lot of I people. Think of it. I think you're hundred percent correct. I'll give you a great example of a super let's even say mainstream record that the entire second half, you could almost call deep cuts because, and it's your favorite band. Moving Pictures by Rush is a record that people never get past side one. Side one is Tom Sawyer, Red Bar Shadow, YYZ. Can, can I tell, can I tell
1: you can I can I tell you a secret? Sure. I always listen to the second half of that album
2: first. Of course you do because you are a true (laughs) fan you love the deep cuts side one is just like they're like home run home run they're just knocking them out of the park it's like (laughs) it's like the mlb home run derby they're just getty's up at the plate and he's just knocking them out of the park you get to side two you get vital signs camera eye and it's like now's where it's a really really cool record on side two and only the true fans ever make it that far it's like the the casual fans listen to those first four tracks on side one, and then just go back and start them over again because they're that great, right? But they never get to side two. Injustice, second half is my favorite part, Uh, better than the first half. You know what I just learned about Injustice for All? I just Mm. found out. When that record came out, it was a double album. No shit, really? Because uh, only on LP. If you bought the record of it, it was a double album. And so, wow. which is crazy. And side one it would just be like blackened and the title track, and then side yeah. two would be Eye of the Beholder and one, and then you'd have the second record, which would have the second half of the album on it. So, anyway, oh, I never I, I never thought of it as a double album. But hey, uh Scott, call to arms. You ready for this? Yes.
1: Anybody who is listening to this, I want you to email us or. Send us a post on X, DM us, whatever. Contact us in any way, Instagram, whatever. Give us your coolest deep cuts for us to check out. That would be awesome. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll read some of them in a podcast where we get some of our one or two listeners with some deep cuts and we'll, we'll shout them out. So if anybody shares some of their deep cuts, maybe we'll, maybe we'll relay them on a,
2: on a future podcast. That'd be kind of cool, right? Well, before we move on to the next and final news yeah. item tell me what uh nikki Sixx is. Do you, do you happen to know his favorite deep cuts
1: oh, yeah 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 so i want yeah i wanted to see if um uh you have ever heard of any of these okay so let's see um
2: starry eyes Yep. okay what do you think of that song do you have an opinion on that I don't. I think it's on the first record, but I could be mistaken. I do uh, not yeah, have all, their catalog memorized. It's like off others. of uh,
1: uh, the one, uh, is that Too Fast for Love? Right? Yeah, that's their first record. It's yep. off of Too Fast for Love. Uh, number two, Louder Than Hell from Theater of Pain. Anything off of Theater of Pain is terrible, so I don't know if you have a
2: thought on that. Yep, terrible. Okay, so let's see. Danger from Shot at the Devil. Yep, legitimate deep cut. Like I said, if they're, if you were going to find deep cuts in the Motley catalog, they're on the first two records. It's the only place where you're going to find them. Note about that song,
1: never played it live. There you go. Note on that one. Um, sick love song from Red, White, and Crew. No thanks. Uh, the 27th most played song live. They played that song live 238 times. How about Good that? Uh, and finally, Generation Swine from Generation Swine. No. No. no, notorious Sucky, or you bad. just don't have an, a bad, really?
2: Yeah, that's the record. The first record where Vince Neil came back, and then they kind of went grunge. Uh, right,
1: right, 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 yeah, right. It's
2: just any bad. any eighties
1: or seventies band that tries to go grunge, it's not going to work. Remember, Kiss tried that, and it was just really yeah. forced. Right, forced. So, forced. There we go. Okay, so moving along. So I have to admit, we're going to talk about your favorite rocker, Dave Grohl. Um, I have to. I. I I, you don't hate him he's just not your favorite guy um, I understand it's cool he's a little a great drummer. Nice. he's a little too nice and vanilla for your particular taste of rocker I get it you like if he was more like Bond Scott he might be more on your list Uh, But that's cool. He's not the, what do you, what do you call the, uh, he's not an outlaw like Bon Scott is. He's more like the other side. Like if you come over to his house, he'll like make you a cup of coffee or something. But anyway, so this article, I thought when I first saw the title of this article, I had a really different opinion than after I read the article. The title of the article is, Are You Still Punk If You're Rich? Here's what Dave Grohl thinks. And when I first read the title of that article, I'm like, we have to talk about this because I want to hear pompous rich people talk about, you know, trying to stay true to their former selves, right? And how pompous that is and how, you know, like on the one sports radio station we listen to here, like their big joke is, well, congratulations on all your success, right? But when I read the article, I had a different opinion because he talks about before Nirvana was successful and how him and him and Kurt lived in an apartment and there was fucking corn dog sticks and cigarettes all over the place and how he really really remembers working his way up and it wasn't an overnight thing and he says you know it went from eating corn dogs and cigarettes to our fifteen dollar per diem and now I can afford two packs of cigarettes and I think. After I read this article, like I have, they talk about how nice of a guy Dave Grohl is, and I can really respect him after reading this article because even though he's worth a bazillion dollars, I think one time, I, like a few years ago, I think I read he's worth like two hundred, over $200 million. Like, it's oh, ridiculous. Oh, good right? for um, you! He really remembers where he came from, and he really tr- tries to not let the money thing and the fame thing get in the way of all of that so i wanted to kind of get your thought on that because i really i kind of respect him even more after reading this article for really going out of his way to at least talk about remembering where he came
2: from and he seemed pretty genuine about it so does that but is does that answer the question is can you be rich and punk is that is it (sighs) i don't well i think
1: um i i I think one of the one of the things about being punk is being poor and going against the grain, right? So, I mean, Scott, maybe you can answer that question better than me. I mean, can you be rich and punk at the same time?
2: Well, I've certainly been poor at a, a time or two <laughs> in life. You know, it reminds me of uh, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys has a great line in a song that goes, "Harder core than thou for a year or two, then it's time to get a real job." You know, in other words, you can kind of, you can kind of be super hardcore punk, but it has like an expiration on it. Right. Because you can crash at friends houses for so many nights in a row and mooch food and just smell bad before you have to actually kind of conform to, uh, to society a little bit. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Or does, or is punk more of a sour grapes
1: thing? Like, you know, I don't have what. You know middle america has or what rich people have so i'm just gonna say it's not cool right kind of like that counterculture thing which is what rock is
2: based on scott sorry i didn't mean to interrupt could be a little bit of that too but i think if you're just thinking of it less as like a lifestyle and more of like an ethos you know then it can be like for dave grohl and the foo fighters it you know, they all have punk rock roots. They've got a—I uh, can't space it on his name—but a uh, Pat Smear, the guy who played for yeah. the Germs, is in that band. I mean, yep. so they have legitimate punk rock like lineage. They may all be insanely wealthy now but you know hey you you succeeded you know but i think as long as you kind of remember like you said remember where you came from and are writing music that's honest and not pandering to you know just sell records then i think you are being punk in a sense right um you know so i think you know what's interesting is when you said how much money he's worth and i thought to myself that's got to be all foo money now Obviously he was in Nirvana, but in Nirvana, think about it. Nirvana only had 3 studio albums and yeah. the Unplugged EP and then they had like a um collections thing called Incesticide. So they had like a B-sides collection. They had 3 studio records, Bleach, Nevermind and In Utero. Then they had a live album and then they had the unplugged record. so they really had three studio albums and if i'm not mistaken on those three studio albums dave grohl has a grand total of one writing credit and that's where you make your money people otherwise you're just a paid studio musician so you make your money on royalties and he had one writing credit on a song called scentless apprentice which is the second track on in utero and it's a track that's intentionally unlistenable so it's not single material (laughs) <laughs> okay so but with the foo fighters how many writing credits does Dave Grohl have well the well, whole right. fucking catalog right exactly and, and, and they probably have like I don't know a dozen albums
1: or whatever and, yeah and a, they've had and, major vast, hits that's yeah. right a vast majority of them maybe shitload of hits on on most of them
2: right and sold godzilla sized units back whenever records were selling because they came out in the 90s when people were still buying cds so i'm thinking all of that money that he's made he got paid per diems he got paid to be a touring musician he certainly got paid for to be the session guy on those nirvana studio records but he only had one writing credit in the band so I'm guessing that all that money, that 200 million, just comes from the Foo Fighters, which is pretty fucking crazy if you think about it.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna say his time with Nirvana maybe was more impactful with regard to the history of music, but his time with Foo Fighters is profoundly more successful from from a from an all around from a, from a songwriting perspective financially you know longevity all of it has been way more successful as foo fighters but more impactful as nirvana
2: i don't know if that do you do you think that's safe to say i mean you can't argue with the with the success that they've had i mean if you think of the guy's resume it's pretty incredible that he was in nirvana and then struck out and started this band after cobain's suicide that's become insanely successful in a way He's kind of like the last guy, you know? He's like the representative of rock music now. Yeah, because and- what did he do? Like
1: after after uh Nirvana, like the first album, he said fuck this and he went in and did the whole thing by himself and marketed the whole thing by himself. He just he just took a chance. He had money from Nirvana. He did the entire thing and I got to res- he like that's amazing and he 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 parlayed that first album a total solo job into fucking 30 years of hits after hits after hits and album after album so um so can you be punk and and be rich at the same time i think it depends and it's a case-by-case scenario in my opinion so on that note we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about the original man in black not 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 not, uh tommy lee jones and not fucking fresh prince we're going to be talking johnny cash my man so stay
0: tuned looking for a good rock and roll book do you watch a ton of rock and roll documentaries like i do well that's why i started the rock talk studio podcast to be the place to go for previews reviews and recommendations of rock and roll books documentaries and movies Every first Tuesday of the month, the Rock Talk Studio gets you caught up on all the latest and points out where to go for the good stuff. Give me 20 minutes and I'll get you caught up on the world of rock and roll books, docs, and movies from every possible angle and leave you with a no doubt decision on where to spend your time and money. Fan or just casual fan, or maybe you're on the fence and just looking for something new to check out, either way, I got you covered. Recently on the show, I've talked about books and documentaries from everyone and everything from David Bowie, Randy Rhodes, and the Allman Brothers, To the abbey road studios cheap trick stevie ray vaughn little richard and more join me big rick every tuesday of the month as i host a rock talk studio podcast the ultimate review of rock and roll books documentaries and movies
2: our mind on music is a podcast that covers all things music cover all genres and we welcome all perspectives
1: from musicians producers and content creators to music
0: enthusiasts we have discussions interviews opinions and much much more we hope you'll join us every week our mind on music on youtube and all streaming platforms
2: we are gathered here to remember rock and roll Rock was born the rambunctious son of country western and blues in the year of our Lord, 1955. On this day, the birth of rock and roll, gifted under the world a gyrating pelvis, a throbbing beat, and a pulsating rhythm, a sound so infectious and rollicking that it would endow previously scrupulous young minds with identity individualism and purpose, thus setting forth a multi-generational pursuit of all that is loud, debaucherous, and unholy. But, sadly, like all earthly endeavors, rock too must perish. Oh, we mourn the loss of rock and roll with its ridiculously old standard bearers still on tour and charging ungodly amounts of mad jack to witness their long past the sell by date asses on stage and with its chauvinism, misogyny and whiteness no longer aligning with modern sensibilities and with its aging fist shaking fan base Kicking every would-be rocker off their proverbial lawn. Rock has indeed passed into the celestial void. May rock rest in peace. In eternal cacophonous slumber. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Scott. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Autopsy Podcast. The All right,
1: ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Hey Scott. Um wearing black clothes is cool as fuck, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Especially when you got all black on. You look like a fucking badass G, don't you? When you wear all black.
2: Wear black underpants. Because the skid marks are no longer visible. Totally, dude. You could pretty much shit yourself
1: wearing black underwear. Nobody'll ever know except for the smell. And when you wash your underwear, when you got black underwear, it's like they're brand new. You, you'll, nobody is the wiser. So, especially good call, dude. Black underwear, but you know who started this? You want to know who made wearing black clothes cool, dude? Johnny Cash, man. Uh, oh yeah, Johnny, Johnny fucking Cash. Johnny yep. fucking Cash. Remember when he started that shit? I think it was in the seventies. He's like, mm. "I'm Johnny Cash, and and I wear black." can you do you want to just remind our our listener or two out there that might not know about the black clothes thing you remember remember him talking about that way back in the Wayback machine
2: yeah and he even had a song like the man in (gasps) black you know and he would talk about how he wears black for one of the lyrics in the song i can't remember exactly but he wears it for the poor and the forgotten and you know he wears it to it's almost like going to a funeral every day right right for the downtrodden for the 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 forgotten you know all of that and I, i
1: i always thought that was pretty freaking cool but today we're going to talk about "Delia's is gone and this is the latest iteration of this song scott um is off of the 1994 album called american recordings dude this is a rick rubin joint man He, he he freaking resurrected johnny cash um in 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 the 90s and uh um this song is the first track off the album it's it's a it's a in uh, a very efficient two eighteen, but this is that this song. This song has been done um, a few different times over the over the decades, um, and uh, so we're going to talk about this song. And this is going to be so I can't wait to talk about jo- first of all Johnny Cash, legend like a legend's legend, American storyteller Scott.
2: But did this song kill rock and roll? I don't know. We're going to find out. I mean, Johnny Cash, you talk about wearing black. I mean, does it make me feel like so shallow, right? Because he's wearing it to represent like the sick and the lonely and the mm-hmm. old. And I'm wearing it just to camouflage skid marks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: it kind of detracts from the original intent, perhaps, right? But hey, mission accomplished, dude. It, get, it, it works so yeah if any, so a little that's a little life hack for you for all of those <laughs> all you and this is not this does not apply to females this because it just doesn't this is a dude life hack so if you, if you if you want a little secret guys out there black underwear all the way
2: yeah but you know what i i try to wear black to look cool but instead i just look like i've been you know like i walked by a bonfire and all the ash you know came down on my shoulders because i i have like perpetual even though i'm bald my head is always like super ashy and flaky so you know i'm always like i got to apply lotion to keep it like tamed down so my shoulders i'm always brushing dander off my shoulders if i got Ugh. black on it's a lot of work man yes yeah, that's the hard part about
1: wearing black especially the shirt is like it shows everything right and if you got like a if you eat and you're wearing black pants or a black shirt, like you really got to be careful because you can see everything and the flakes on your shoulders. Yep. Holy mackerel. And if you've got a dog, forget, you can't wear black oh, if you got a dog. Forget
2: about it. Or if you're yeah. like me and you're a dummy and you put your deodorant on and you put your shirt on and you get that cool little line that goes along the side where you see the yeah. white line. Because you put dirt. your deodorant on first and then <laughs> you put your shirt on, right? Right. And it rolls over and it gets all... Now, Little secret, you got to put the shirt on first. And I then know I forget. The on. I know, I know. I, I do too sometimes. Rico, I've been dressing myself for fifty years, <laughs> and I still every day the order in which I get dressed is just like potluck. <laughs> like do you know I, when I when I
1: forget <laughs> when I forget and put the deodorant on first? I actually get pissed at myself before yes. I put the shirt on because I already know what's going to happen. And I get the deodorant on, <laughs> and then I grab my shirt and I'm like, fuck, man, I'm supposed to do it. The-. And I literally get mad at myself for about 30 seconds. And I'm like, fuck it, nothing I can do now. Unless you go into the bathroom and wash your arm, wash it which, off,
2: which I suppose is an option, but yeah. It's just you become that guy, because then everybody sees the little white streaks on your shirt, and is like, "Oh yeah, an idiot, put his shirt on after putting his yeah. And and while I'm and while I'm pissed about the order in
1: which I put my deodorant on, this guy was wearing black in order to remember and honor people who have it rough and have it, are forgotten and and misrepresented, and and I'm worried about deodorant. So All right, I mean, well, where's listen. my fucking
2: priorities? I split the difference. I'll wear a white t-shirt to hide the deodorant streak in the dandruff. And I'll wear black britches to get the skid marks covered. And I'll be good to go. Hey, there we go. There's an answer. It's a good compromise. All right, gang. Well, now that we figured out the fashion side of Johnny Cash, let's get to this rock and roll autopsy, man. We've got what is it this week? We're talking American recordings, we're talking 90s, uh, resurrected Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin era of his career, act three, as I like to call it. Delia's gone. Rico, it's Rock and Roll Autopsy. We've developed over almost 100 episodes this exhaustive proprietary science by which we use to judge this music to try to figure out if it killed rock and roll. I got to tell you, man, I got home from work today and literally I hadn't even like set my bags down and my kids were fighting in the living room. And I heard my youngest scream to my oldest, shut up, you stupid something. I can't remember what it was, but they were in a bad fight. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I just walked in the door and I got to start yelling at the kids already. You know what I mean? So I think to myself, these kids, they require a lot of parenting. And I think, man, would I trust them to shut your stupid mouth what does she say i can't remember but would i trust them with this proprietary science if they can't even get along while they're doing homework these children exactly would you i can't you can't i would want to but i can't yeah exactly which is why you need pros right don't let children try this at home requires parental supervision or better yet leave it to guys like Rico and I who are proven and experienced amateur pathologists. We've got this autopsy stuff under control. Proprietary science. We've got five categories. They are gratuitous boomerism, excessive misogyny, wanton whiteness, malignant machismo and culture vulturism. Rico, the song is Dilia's gone. The album, American recordings, the artist, Johnny Cash, gratuitous boomerism how do you score
1: you know i hate to say this but if i ask anybody probably under the age of 40 or 45 if they could name one johnny cash song oh no they're probably not going to be able to do it as much as i hate to, to talk about this johnny cash ceased to be irrelevant after the mid 90s i hate to say it because he's one of those guys johnny cash dude like yes he's not perfect we've all seen the joaquin phoenix movie which did you like that the joaquin phoenix movie
2: i loved it it was was great great, right saw it in a theater and the theater rocked man that music sounded great in a theater it rocked oh
1: i can only imagine i I can't remember i think i saw it on tv but do you know how historically accurate that movie was
2: was it like pre or was it dramatized or was it pretty accurate i don't know but i would imagine like all of those movies there's a i would imagine there's a significant deal of creative license taken with it. okay so so he's had his
1: ups and downs. Um, and, and even you know, when Rick Rubin contacted him about this album, like he was just getting over another drug relapse. I don't know, like back in the day it was heroin, I think, right? I think everybody was doing it, and I don't know what he maybe it was heroin, who cares, That's irrelevant? But he's had his ups and downs, like you know, the song Ring of Fire is is written by Roseanne cash, no, Roseanne cash is the wife, right? Roseanne, or is June the
2: Carter would be
0: the June wife Carter. The Roseanne
1: is the daughter, right? Daughter, June yeah. Carter wrote ring of fire about her really up and down relationship with Johnny cash and how a lot of times it was just not very fun. So one of his biggest hits was about his own bad experiences or her bad experiences with him in their marriage. So he has not been a perfect guy, but man, dude, could he tell a story with a guitar holy christ but the point of this is if i ask anybody if they know anything about johnny cash under the age of 40 they're probably not i hate to say it; these songs are super generational nobody under 40 is going to even give a shit i I hate to do this but i got to give it a one for for boomerism oh i know it's painful I, i i don't want to but science
2: yeah, and you know, Cash predates uh the boomers. He's actually born in nineteen thirty-two. Um yes. but I have to agree because I have to think that as much as I personally, this type of music, dude, it hits me in that. We talked about Roger Waters and Dark Side I of know. the Moon, and there's this type of music i was raised on this kind of music you know mm-hmm. what i mean like my dad was a big frankie lane guy he was a big bluegrass guy Elvis, you you more so Earl than me Perkins. that's for sure oh yeah i was raised on this stuff mm-hmm. so this music like really we played johnny cash at my wedding and my uncle was like you know he was like complimenting me on the music you know what i mean it's like so i was kind of raised on this stuff so i got a real soft spot for this stuff but I can't think emotionally here because that wouldn't be science. I've got to hold to the science. And for that Rico, as much as I, as painful as it is for me to say it, I have to score this a one because I got to think that for young people out there to hear a song like this or pretty much anything in his catalog, unless they were raised in like, you know, Alabama or something where they probably yeah. still have some relatability to this music you yeah. know, in the South. I would guess that this would sound like super 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 old music to them.
1: Yeah, and and in order for our science to have any modicum of credibility, like there's no room for opinion in this podcast at all whatsoever. So, I I commend you because I know how much you love Johnny Cash.
2: So, Ring of Fire um covered by a Social Distortion at one point, but also no. Can I go for the big red truck here, Rico? Do it, big, man. super obvious. Fucking do it, man. I mean, if you hit T Bell up at the, you know, late at night, um, you know, yeah. you're gonna have that, that that burn that burn ring of fire. Yeah, you're gonna have some. If you know what I mean, gonna have some hot snakes in the morning when you when you run to the shitter. <laughs> well, totally worth it, though, right? <laughs> what's your go to? What's your go to at Taco Bell?
0: You ain't fat. You ain't fat i'm
2: not fat i'm big boned um i'll be honest with you i i enjoy taco bell but i don't eat it very often i don't even know what their menu looks like anymore but i can tell you when i used to eat it frequently in the 90s when this record was hip and relevant um I don't eat a lot of fast food anymore, but in the 90s, when I ate fast food, specifically Taco Bell, I would go, I don't even think they have it on the menu anymore, but I would go chili cheese burrito, bean burrito. I like the Mexican pizza. I don't think they have that on the menu anymore. Uh, I think they do have Mexican pizza again, once again. Oh, okay. I think they brought it back. Uh, they did chalupas for a while. I liked those. Those are good. Chalupas what was the good. one where they did the hard and the soft crust, and they used the refried beans as, like, spackle, like an adhesive in the middle, of uh, them together? Oh, the uh, th- the taco-shaped one? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought that was the chalupa, no? No, the is like a bready kind gordita. of. Like. Oh, gordita. Oh, the gorditas were good. But I think the gordita's different. Or is it? Mm, I know what you're the talking about. The chalupa on, was like that. a like a thick tortilla like a thick heavy bread like tortilla i think yeah yeah yeah. i know but, what you're talking about was it called spackle, the double double something right double, double double layer double layer taco something
1: but they used like, like a that. yeah they, they had took, a hard one on the inside yes backle it with some beans and they put the soft one on the outside and they glued <laughs> them together yeah I, oh, i've had those before those are really good <laughs> L- listen man i don't i don't I rarely eat at Taco Bell anymore. I mean, yeah. I don't care. I'll eat anything on the menu, but I will go out of my way. And I'm going to tell everybody I work with a guy who didn't know what a Baja blast was. No, um, let me tell you, they have both regular and they have Baja blast zero with no sugar in it. And let me tell you, if you are in the neighborhood of a Taco Bell, you need to just turn your ass right around and get yourself to a Taco Bell and get a Baja Blast.
2: They're amazing. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. You yeah, know what's funny sure. is my brain, even though I'm elderly now, but my brain still thinks of the Taco Bell menu like in the 90s when I was drunk every day and eating T-Bell oh, yeah. at 2.30 in the morning. So yeah. I think the last time I was at Taco Bell, I was getting food for my kids and i couldn't believe the menu i'm like there's nothing on here under a dollar and i remember like the soft tacos used to be like 69 cents i'm gonna sound really dated give me a plus one for boomerism but they're like three bucks now
1: (laughs) yeah remember you could get like a 10 pack or a a 10 pack of tacos and it was like what like seven or eight bucks or whatever yeah because they were less
2: than they were less than a buck a piece oh t-bill all right anyway category two i'm scoring that a one gratuitous boomerism delia's gone johnny cash back on track here the food uh the the digression is over thank you rico uh let me (laughs) a mental note not to mention food the rest of the way (laughs) category two is excessive misogyny and rico i have the lyrics up if you would like me to uh read you a line or two or ten that would be that would be outstanding Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone. One more round, Delia's gone. I went up to Memphis, and I met Delia there, found her in her parlor, and I tied her to her chair. Delia's gone. One more round, Delia's gone. She was low down and trifling, and she was cold and mean. Kind of evil makes me want to grab my submachine. Delia's gone. One more round. Delia has gone. Let me get into the last. I'll do this first and then quit first time I shot her. I shot her in the side, hard to watch her suffer, but with the second shot, she died. Is that enough for you, Rico?
1: It certainly is. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to, and this, this shouldn't surprise you. Like in preparing for this episode, this is the first time that I've listened to this song. Okay. Um, probably isn't a gigantic surprise to you uh, i'm sure but um when i before i before i you know looked at the background of the song i just wanted to listen to it just straight up once or twice and i didn't know that there's this song is based on a real story you see and i'm sure you already knew this um so i'll let you tell the story if you want to um do you want to tell the story nope go for it man so so this song, the floor so, is so, yours i just did a yeah, lot of reading yeah dude D- delia the song is about a girl named delia green back in 1900 scott when she was 14 years old she was uh shot by a 15 year old named moses houston on christmas eve right and uh and so uh to make a long story short um uh, several more than more than one song was written about this. Uh, and this song is like, when I first listened to this song, I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah, dude, this is this. Uh, I'm going to, this will be plus one on a lot of categories Till I found out that it was actually a, a based on a real event that really happened. And I'm like, well, it kind of changes things a little bit because Johnny cash is not being this misogynistic boomer. That's that's talking about shooting a woman. Like he's just talking, he's just being a storyteller, that he's being the storyteller that he is, Scott. He's being the American fucking storyteller that he is legendary, that he is legend for. And so I wanted to ask you this, though, because what I'm getting out of this, and you'll be able to either confirm or deny this because you're, you have way more, uh, um, you're more ensconced into Johnny Cash than me. Is, is it me or do I get a little bit of injected dry Johnny Cash humor into this, into the lyrics of this?
0: Oh, I, do think I get you a can... little
1: bit of humor in because I listened to the whole album and there's a little bit of injected dry Johnny Cash humor in a lot of his songs.
2: A little bit. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of a part of it. I think you can take it a couple of different ways. You know, I think as he gets older in these American recordings with Ruben and his this is his first recording his first record with reuben so this is him at his youngest in that act three american recordings era mm-hmm. by the time you get to the fourth record yeah um he's super old and his voice is super it's really aged and it, you can yeah, hear yeah, yeah. it and so it's hard all you hear is kind of like the gravitas of his age with the lyrics and that any humor kind of like isn't really there but i would mm-hmm. i would agree that there's like you can pick up with like scant kind of elements of humor in here. It depends on how you take it. Some people are going to hear this and not find it funny at all. They're going to hear. See, this is where you can talk about as a storyteller. Then I'll let you finish your scoring, but there's a couple of different ways to take that Rico is just because it's based on a true story doesn't mean or let it off the hook in terms of, you could make the argument that you could choose not to record this song because you're glamorizing. An event where it makes it look cool because i grab my submachine right so it's that whole hip-hop argument we hear about glamorizing violence it's that whole like slayer's got a song angel of death we did it you know hey auschwitz based on a true story yeah but are you glamorizing or somehow making that stuff look cool or attractive to impressionable young minds right so you could make that argument that yeah it's based off something real but it could still be theoretically misogynistic because why are you putting it out into the world if it can be interpreted that way right which is precisely why
1: unfortunately scott once again i have to give this song a one because he still even though it's a story he doesn't have to talk about it and the little in the little in the little teeny elements of humor that he injects into this song. I was going to do like a half a point because it's, he's telling a story, but he, you know what I mean? I was kind of going to meet in the middle a little bit because of the little injected elements of humor in this. And, and the way some of it is, it's, is a little embellished for the song purpose. I got to I hate to do it, man. It's going to be another one for me
2: yeah it's it's funny because it could be like in a way the song reminds me a little bit of the guns and roses used to lover song and there's always no, been that debate no, good, of good pull with used to lover is it about a woman or is it about a dog right <laughs> now <laughs> right J- johnny cash obviously isn't going to marry his dog but um you know but there are points of this where you you could interpret it that way you know it's like uh All around the bedside, I hear the patter of Delia's feet, right? I mean, that to me, that almost sounds like you would think of like four legs, the sound of like a dog's, you know, nails uh, clanking against a hardwood (laughs) floor, right? I would describe that as a patter, not like a woman's feet walking, but the little bit of humor though, in like Delia's gone one more round, Delia's gone, right? Because it gives you the sense of either he's in a bar ordering around or- another round in the chamber. Right. So it's like, or, or double I meaning of thing. like when he repeats that line, another round
1: of maybe repeating the line. So right. I like the multiple, the double triple entendre of another round. That is one of my favorite parts. Glad you mentioned that because it's one of my favorite parts of the lyrics actually.
2: So he feels remorse at the end, right? Yeah. Jailer. Oh, jailer. He can't sleep. He's being haunted by the memory of yep. uh, this murder. Um, but where the misogyny aside from the obvious, um, and by the way, I think he has every right to tell these stories and I don't worry about whether or not things glamorize anything. Oh. No one's forced to consume anything. You can listen exactly. to it or never listen to it, Perception. put it out into the world. It's art. It's beautifully done. Um, having said that though, where the misogyny kind of comes in for me as you scored that a one, correct? I, I did. I didn't want to, but I felt like I had to. So she was low down and trifling. She was cold and mean, kind of evil, makes me want to grab my submachine, right? So (laughs) and that's a little more of that humor you're talking about. And that's almost like these are almost like rap lyrics in a way, right? I mean, in a a weird way,
0: it's like there's a lot of
2: there's a lot of parallels I think with Johnny cash and like rap music, or even like you talk about walk the line and you're like, well, how much of that movie is realistic. And you're like, well, we know he did a lot of like, you know, he wasn't the best guy at times. And you think about it and it's like, well, anybody who's going to put their life out there so publicly and write songs about relationships, you run the risk of painting yourself or being perceived in something other than a flattering light. I mean, go listen to like the Eminem show. You know what I mean? It's True. like, that's part of the art. You know what I mean? You, you might not look like the best guy if you're being honest about your relationships. And guess what? If someone was writing music about my relationships and how I've treated people and been treated in my life, I might not look like the best guy all the time because I haven't always been right. Right. And and that's what makes him such a great storyteller because
1: he flays himself open and tells these stories that might not, that other people like he, again, going back to um, ring of fire, that song was written about him being a bad guy. And he went out of his way to make that song important. And he was willing to flay himself open flaws and all in order to tell a great story. That's why he's such
2: a legend. I got to give it a one for excessive (laughs) misogyny. (laughs) First time I shot her, I shot her in the side, hard to watch her suffer. But with the second shot, she died. Watson whiteness category three Delia (laughs) Dilla's gone. Johnny cash Rico. How do you score? Um, this whole, like
1: this is this whole album is just him and a microphone and an acoustic guitar and nothing else. Shit. Robert Johnson did that. Right. Right. He started this shit, right? Yeah, there, there's nothing, not in my, in my opinion, there's nothing cracker about about this song, at all. Like we're talking about this song and about this this album. Even this is th- this whole the whole way it was concocted with just a man and a microphone and a guitar. There's nothing wanton whiteness about that at all. It's just a, it's just a a soulful story laid out by a great storyteller and there's I, I this is a straight zero for me actually
2: yeah it's um it's an american tradition right it's that's right. it's it's american blues really um and yep. in, in that's a way it, that's all it is just slow blues this is where you know rick rubin gets a lot of stick for being like there's some bands he's worked with that can't stand him. They're like, we thought this guy was some genius and all he does is come in there and lay on the couch with his eyes shut and other people twiddle the knobs and actually do the engineering on the record. And he just lays there and snores while we play and then tells us then has the audacity to tell us whether it's good or not. And so he has this, like um this guru rep- reputation, right. then not being like super connected in the studio and kind of being too philosophical, but this this record is where he this record is where he puts himself on the map, man, is that he plucked Johnny Cash out of, you know, his career had gone into the dirt to your point, drugs again, and has the genius to just be like, man, everybody tried to put you with an orchestra, put you on television, give you parts and Dr. Quinn medicine woman and all this crap, just get back to doing what you did it just an acoustic guitar recorded this record in a cabin in tennessee yep. just a man in his voice beautiful i'm gonna give it a zero as well yeah and before
1: you go on like i've got a couple of quotes from rick rubin about this he said just sitting and talking and playing music that was when we got to build up a friendship, Ruben recalled. My fondest memories are just of hanging out and hearing his stories. He didn't speak much, but if you drew him out, he seemed to know everything. He was shy and quiet, but a wise, wise man. Like I can just imagine Ruben just being just He he always he almost sounds like he was just awestruck the entire and how could you not be from like this legendary storyteller and you have him in a cabin with a guitar and you're just hearing him spit out all these really amazing stories in song and probably them just talking too and so I can
2: imagine it was a pretty amazing experience actually regardless of what anyone's opinion of Rick Rubin is as a producer is the fact that he this is a gift. These last four or five records Johnny cash did with him. These are a Mm -hmm. gift to American culture and I'm thankful they happened because to me, they're my favorite Johnny cash records. And I think, and so I'm just thankful that Rick Rubin made this happen and got this guy to have such, I think it's the most successful act three of any artist I can think of. All right, let's move on. We're running out of time. Malignant machismo delia is gone. Rico, how do you school? Yeah, man, uh, dude, Johnny, like, gosh,
1: we have to define a new category of machismo. This like Johnny cash machismo. I, I mean, I, I, I have to give him a one, but I feel like I'd be penalizing him for giving him a one because his machismo is so fucking cool. Um, but, but, you know, he is machismo, but he wasn't always a great guy. And with regard to this song, the song is, is about shoot uh, shooting shooting a girl. So, I mean, dude, I, I have science, man. I have to give it a one. I don't want to, but I have to. I'm sorry, dude.
2: Yeah, I agree. I have to as well. I mean, he's a badass. And so, you know, there's, this is uh, it's some ma- seriously macho shit. And he's literally out here blowing people away. Yeah, yeah. He loses a little bit of sleep over it, so if you want to dock him <laughs> point five for that, <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of remorse at the end. All right, let's move on. Our final category in this rock and roll autopsy: Delia's gone. Johnny Cash, culture vulturism. Rico, how do you score zero? And if and it, and it could never be anything above a zero. This
1: dude is a total one-off. He's completely unique. It's Johnny fucking cash, dude. Who the fuck is he vaultering? That's all I got to say.
2: Yeah, it's a zero. I mean, in spite of the fact that I guess you could make an argument of like, you know, is he aping like the, you know, blues tradition or, you know, he's always doing other people's songs. Right. So, but that was pretty common back in the day. And Rick Rubin did a nice, nice job of selecting songs for him to do on this record and songs that really showcased his, Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) his intimacy his intimate vocal and guitar performance on the record so I'm going to score it a zero as well um yep right, Rico let's wrap this up I've got for my final score let's see I've got oh my goodness I've got three points
1: Mm, and I've got let's see I've got also have three points for a grand total of of
2: six points right in the middle yeah i think the science worked out pretty good on this one i think so um i mean i don't know how you could i'm sorry go ahead no 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 go ahead i was going to say at the end of the day as maybe controversial as this track would be There's no rock and roll death happening here at all, at least in the time. He rode that wave. This record, if it came out in the 80s, it wouldn't have hit the same way. But coming out in 1994, when minds were a little more open musically and the culture in rock music was super artistic, like Tony Bennett, he was embraced by. The rock stars of that era, they all loved him. The Soundgarden guys, the Red Hot Chili Peppers guys, Glenn Danzig, he was running with all those guys. And so mm-hmm. he became like as hip as those guys, which is how someone like me, I grew up with Johnny Cash in my household, but I was like, I thought it was awesome. I was, I was like, oh, it's so cool that he's like, suddenly contemporary because i grew up hearing all his old shit that my dad played and now he was like covering danzig songs and Soundgarden songs and he was like super contemporary so i loved it man yeah that that was
1: important to note that that the time in which the timing in which this came out was super important you're right something like this would have never worked in the 80s at all nope had to come no way i had to be in the 90s but i guess my my personal final thought on this is um this entire album i think is fantastic i think everybody should go out of their way to listen to anything he put out in from the early 90s on any of it is a is a home run you have to you know know what you're getting into if you listen to this with the right brain you will enjoy the hell out of this this is some legendary shit here i'll give you the floor to end this
2: yeah man i mean you summed it up pretty well dude i mean i i mean i would rather discuss skid marks a little bit more to be honest with you <laughs> if you wanted to have any kind of like epilogue to the show um i will say one thing i had i had gas so bad monday at work that i was miserable the entire day man it was one of those days where i was shifting in my chair the whole day just holding back farts
1: do do you know like what 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 made you so gassy do you know oh i know exactly what it was hummus really oh chickpeas right yeah 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 oh you know what speaking of chickpeas dude oh wait uh, hold on (laughs) no i saw you could make you can make uh, you know what a blondie is right no it's kind of like a brownie except it's like it's so that's kind of like a like a it's like uh it looks like it looks like a cookie it's not chocolate right you can make you can make blondies with
2: chickpeas instead of flour oh my wife does that she makes yeah she makes cookies with like black beans and stuff she does all that crazy Can, can i can i tell you a secret about being
1: gassy I, I am often gassy too, just because I'm me and I have flawed intestines. I've, I farted in my office for the first time today in, in the uh, almost, in the almost six years that I worked there. Good for you. Anybody uh, catch it? No, it was glorious too, man. It, I felt so relieved afterwards rather than like scooting myself to the bathroom. I'm like, screw this. Nobody's coming into my office. I let her rip and it was amazing. It felt, I was, I was so happy I did that.
2: Good for you, man. I thought about been, it. I thought, I thought about you. Thank you. I've never been more happy and relieved <laughs> that you're on the other end of a zoom. <laughs> 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 so Elon Musk figures out that how to do smell of vision through X. I think we'll be all right. Um, uh, God, I hope that never happens. Oh yeah. Me too. Smell o vision. Yeah. I don't want that. That would be awful. I can't imagine. All right, gang, so go get your black underpants on and mourn those skid marks. This has been Rock and Roll Autopsy. Rico, have a great night, sir.
1: You too, buddy. Thanks for your time.
2: All right, good night now. Let me have that rock and roll music,
0: yeah! Let me tell you, sir, so the lyrics to real rock music is nothing more than satanic cyanide. Get it out of your house, throw it out, and burn it. It has no place in the house of the righteous.
1: Guys, it was like a mistake.
0: There's no mistake anymore. I'll I'll Love it hey, to the yeah, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone.
1: Follow us on Twitter at RNR Autopsy or you can send an email to rock at gmail.com and if we run across anything good. We'll mention it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Later.
2: Well, you know,
1: that's just like uh, your opinion, man.
2: Before you go, if you like heavy metal and stories, then you'll love Battle of the Bands, the narrative form metal podcast that unpacks the biggest rivalries in rock and metal history. Season one took in Megadeth versus Metallica. In Season 2 went across the divide to explore the beef between Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. It's like Business Wars, but metal. Find Battle of the Bands wherever you listen to your podcasts, or visit battleofthebandspod.com.